message today for this morning, I have called Gospel Fidelity. A few uh, weeks ago when we started at the uh, prayer meeting, the book Deliberate Church that we have been reading through there, um, one of the questions was asked, why is the preaching of the gospel so important to the life of the church? Well, we all understand through the gospel is through which we come uh, receive salvation. But at the same time, the life of the church, the gospel is the lifeblood of the church. The Apostle Paul in First Peter, when he's writing to the persecuted church, he starts with a gospel reminder. He reminds them of their living hope. They have been caused to be born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, undefilable, kept in heaven by God, though now you may suffer for a little while. So he uses the very gospel message and the promises of what has occurred to the church, to those that make up the church, as their hope as they face trials and suffering in this world. Charles Spurgeon once said, The motto of all true servants of God must be, We preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. So I hope this morning we'll have something worth preaching as we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, um, Jacob Dirksen, he also preached for us a while back, and I think everybody here is familiar with Jake and Anita, sent me a message just to encourage me with this sermon this morning and said that they wouldn't be able to come join us this morning because they, he was called out on a maintenance call to John Doerr. So he had to head out there. And I left him, it was on WhatsApp, so I left him a message back and I said, well, that's quite the way to spend your Lord's Day away from the family, right? Out and away from phone service and all those things and just left it at that. He called me about quarter after ten here and said, well, we know God has a purpose for all things. He had picked up some hitchhikers and had visited with them for about 40 minutes and had shared the gospel with them. And there's a gentleman by the name of Corey Ferguson. I don't know who he is. I don't know if anybody else is familiar with him or not. But he shared the gospel with him, and Corey had shared with him that, you know, five minutes before you picked me up, he had been praying. He wanted answers. And then he had wept. They had prayed together. And he had given Jake his phone number. He wanted him to, to keep texting him, to keep calling him, send him more of these stories, send him more of this. So we'll remember to pray for Corey here as well this morning. But I just thought right after I sent Jake that message, you know, what a way to spend your Lord's Day away from home. My next thought after I was done was, well, he'll probably take advantage of it. And praise God that he sent him out there. So, But we see the gospel is still very active and it's still working. Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology writes, The gospel is God's message of mercy to humanity. It contains an exhibition of the plan and the only plan of salvation. It sets forth the person, the work, and the offices of Christ and urges all to whom it comes to accept Christ as their God and Savior and to devote themselves to His worship and service. It assures those who do so that they shall never perish, but shall have eternal life. In one sense, it is everyone's duty, provided he or she has received the knowledge of the gospel, to preach it, to make it known to others. The commission and the command, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, verse 15, is given not to the apostles exclusively, but to the whole church and all its members. Every member has the right and obligation to make known this great salvation to his fellow humans. Again, Charles Hodge. God says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. God is promising Jesus the nations, again, referring to the gospel being sent out and spread throughout the nations of all people, not just Jews, not just Israel, but to the whole world. Jesus fulfills this promise and sends out his disciples into all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So this promise that God has given to Christ Jesus in turn turns around and places that as a privilege that we have as children of God to share in the spreading of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God unto salvation. And further in chapter 10, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. So we see this chain that happens. God promising Christ, Christ giving us that responsibility. And Paul showing us with the boldness that we are to carry this message forth into the world. And it is through the proclamation of this message, the good news, that the Spirit of God works to bring salvation to His people. This is, therefore, then, a message of utmost magnitude and one we must share, for there is only one gospel, and as such, the truth of this gospel cannot be distorted. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I come before You again, God. I thank You for this great task and privilege, Lord, to share Your Word, to open Your infallible Word and to proclaim it. Lord, I pray that You would bless this time and You would help me and grant me wisdom to speak truth from Your Word. That You would be with each one here that the words of Your Gospel might touch our hearts, Lord, that it might help us if we are unsaved, Lord, that it might draw us to Your eternal salvation. And God, if we are, that it might be our hope that we look to through times of trial, hardship, and as well through the good as well, God. Lord, we thank You for Brother Jake this morning as he shared the Gospel with another gentleman and God I pray that you would work in Corey's heart that you would save him Lord and as it sounds like there is a mighty work happening there God that you would bring that to fruition and that you would be glorified in that and God I pray for the rest of the sermon and morning worship time together in Christ's name Amen So our text for this morning We'll be out of Galatians chapter 1. And again, the title of the message, Gospel Fidelity, Remaining Faithful to the True Gospel. So in Galatians chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We've probably all heard the saying, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. My question is how? How would we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ without using words? How will us living good share the truth about the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of our Savior? It can't. It can't. We must live holy lives, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. Be living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But we must proclaim this gospel. Because again, how are they to believe if they have not heard, as Paul writes in Romans 10. Paul wrote his letter to the churches of the Galatian region. After much turmoil, um... We'll set a bit of a background. We won't go through all these verses, but we'll do a bit of an outline from Acts chapter 13 and 14 so that we can set a little bit of a background as to Paul's heart and attitude when he wrote this letter. Um, We find ourselves in Acts chapter 13. And the setting is in Antioch with the prophets and teachers where the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas for the work he has called them to. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off And thus begins Paul's first missionary journey. 
And I'll just go through these little passages and give a little brief explanation on them. You can mark them in your Bible or follow along quickly if you want. But in Acts 13, verses 4 to 5, they find themselves in Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And also John was with them at this time as an assistant. They move further from there into Paphos in Acts 13, verses 6 to 12. Here there was a sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew by the name of Bar-Jesus, who opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Paul confronts the sorcerer and calls him the son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, rebukes him and causes him to be blind. Verse 12 tells us, Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. They then move on into Acts 13, verses 13 and 14, into Perga. In Perga, John left their group, and then they traveled to the Roman province of Galatia to establish churches there. So first, in verses 14 to 52, this is a longer section, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they uh, went on to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the Law and the Prophets, they were asked to speak a word of exhortation for the people. So in verse 16, Paul stands up and addresses them. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Here he's addressing both the Jews and those who fear God, which, same as Cornelius in Acts chapter 2, were the Gentiles, yet they worshipped the God of Israel. Paul then preaches a sermon from verse 16 on to 41. And in the sermon, he gives an outline of Old Testament history. He speaks of God's ultimate sufficiency and provision in Jesus Christ. And then he finishes with an invitation in verse 38 and verse 39. The New King James Version reads in verse 38 and verse 39, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law does not set us free from condemnation. In fact, the law is in direct opposition to the gospel of grace, and the gospel of grace is in direct opposition to any works-based religion. And this ties in well with his letter to the churches of Galatia, when we look at it a little bit later, where he specifically tells them that the forgiveness of sin, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. There's a very big distinction being made there. And this message had such a profound effect on the hearers that they begged him to preach again the next Sabbath in verse 42. Then in verse 44 he says, And the next Sabbath almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. This caused the Jews to become envious. They started opposing Paul's teaching, and Paul responds by rebuking them and turning to the Gentiles. And this is where he says in verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is where Paul's ministry to the Gentiles begins. Persecution raises up against Paul and Barnabas, and they shake the dust off their feet against them and travel to Iconium. In Iconium, preaching the gospel, many believed, both Jews and Greeks. Many were against them, stirring up people against them and their message, and the people were divided again, some siding with the apostles, but some with the Jews. They make a violent attempt to abuse and stone them, but Paul and Barnabas learn of this, and they flee to Lystra and to Derbe. In Lystra, Paul, by the power and grace of God, heals a crippled man. And in turn, the people start worshipping Paul and Barnabas, calling them Hermes and Zeus, after their false gods. Hearing this, they tear their clothes and plead with them that they are only human, and like them that they should rather turn to the living God. And even with their preaching, verse 18 says, they could scarcely restrain them from sacrificing to them. So when Paul and Barnabas were working in the power of the Spirit and they had healed their, the people had turned to them as though they were gods themselves and they were worshipping them and they had wanted to sacrifice to them. But then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra, two places where they had already persecuted Paul and Barnabas. 
And they persuaded these multitudes. Remember, the very same multitudes who just verses before had been worshiping them as gods. And they'd been wanting to make sacrifices to them. And now they were persuading them behind their back that, um, sorry, they were persuading them against Paul and Barnabas because of the envy that they had felt at the previous cities where they had preached to them. And then they stoned Paul and left him for dead. What a contrast. Going from worshiping them to trying to murder him. But later in chapter 14, verse 20 to 21, the day after Paul was stoned, he and Barnabas departed for Derby, And here they preached the gospel and made many disciples. Let's turn to Acts 14 for a second. Starting in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas returned to the cities where they had established these churches. They were strengthening them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, the Scripture says, and appointing elders in every church. We see a great love and compassion that Paul has for the churches that he had started. And through much tribulation, the work of the kingdom had been established by the preaching of the gospel message. But soon afterward, false teaching had started to creep in to the churches and Judaizers were coming in and telling the disciples that they needed to add some law to the gospel of grace and specifically in this case circumcision and if we continue only on from chapter 14 into chapter 15 verse 1 says but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and also in verse 5 but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them in order to order them to keep the law of Moses. So we see the situation that Paul is dealing with here. He has been to all these places. He has traveled through this region. He has established many churches. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten, abused, stoned, and left for dead. But through the gospel, many churches have been started. And in each city, we see people who were hungry for the truth. God was truly saving people and pulling them out of sin and placing them into the church and, but then as we saw it was only when he got back where they initially had been sent out from he heard word that false teachers had crept in after him and had started leading the people astray and they called into question paul's authority as an apostle as well as his gospel of god's grace by faith alone in christ alone paul responds then to these churches by writing to them the epistle that we have in our Bibles as the letter of Paul to the Galatians. This is more of a persuasive letter. It's more of what we would call an apologetics letter, defending his apostleship, his authority, and the gospel of grace. John MacArthur says, this is the only letter Paul wrote that does not contain any kind of commendation or praise for its readers. And this says a lot. Consider even the church in Corinth with all the sin that they were dealing with that Paul writes in that letter, he still greets them in chapter 1, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians, I thank my God always concerning you. So even there, there's a feeling of thankfulness for the church where here Paul is getting right to the point. We get a bit of a feel of the letter in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort 
is the gospel of Christ. Also in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Further in chapter 4, verse 19, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? And then in chapter 6, verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These marks of Jesus that he is bearing on his body could very well be the scars that he was dealing with in these very churches were helping him with when he was being beaten and abused in their midst. So it is with this note that Paul writes this letter. With this heart, he loves this church, he cares for this church, and he is deeply grieved by the fact that they are turning to a different gospel, that they are turning away from the clear presentation of grace that he had given them and turning back to the very law that had enslaved them and kept them in bondage. In chapter six or chapter one, sorry, verse six again, he says, "I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ." He had just referenced this gospel of grace, even in the previous few verses, he makes a quick reference. But through Jesus Christ the Father, who raised him from the dead, remember the resurrection, how vital it is to the gospel. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Grace, the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon the children and placed into the church. Grace and then peace, to have peace with God, to not be under His condemnation, not be under His wrath, the peace that He has given us. We have, in essence, there an order of cause and effect. We have grace. That is the cause, and the effect is peace that we have with God. Paul starts all his letters in that sense, or references that order in them. Then in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here is the gospel. These are the points of the gospel that I gave you. Now I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul is amazed at how quickly they are turning from the gospel of grace. Remember, he had just been with them. He had just built these churches. He had just been encouraging them, establishing elders. He had just brought the gospel of grace to them. He calls the teaching of adding law, in this case specifically circumcision, he calls this teaching a different gospel. Even though circumcision was previously commanded and necessary for Israel, we see that he is here making a distinction between keeping the law and the gospel of grace. He says in verse 7, not that there is another one. End of verse 6, they are turning to a different gospel, but not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. A bit of a distinction to be made here. If we look at the end of chapter 6, he is speaking of a different gospel. They are said here they are turning to a different gospel. The word that is translated here is different. It is speaking of not two things that are similar, but two things that are completely different from one another. They are not the same. It would be similar to saying, um, let's say you're talking about furniture in your house. And you have a couch here and a couch there. They are both couches, but they are different. One is maybe red, one is maybe black. They have different, um, one is leather, one is cloth. There's many differences between them, but they are still both considered couches. And so what he is saying here, they are turning to a different gospel. He is not speaking of a different gospel, but it's just different than the one that I'm preaching. The word here means it would be similar to comparing a couch and, say, a dishwasher. They are two completely opposite things. They have no relation in and of themselves. So when he's telling them that they are turning to a different gospel, he is telling, saying that they have turned to something that is completely unrelated to the gospel. And then in verse 7 he says, not that there is another one. Here that phrase another one would be similar to comparing two couches. He's saying there is no other gospel message 
that compares to the one of grace that I've given you. There is none other that can save. There is no gospel message that we can add works to, add law to, and it still remains the same. And he clarifies that further in verse 7, where he says, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The New King James Version uses the word to pervert the gospel of Christ. The term translated as distort or to pervert, it comes from the Greek word metastrapho, which means to transmute, to corrupt, to pervert, or to turn something into its opposite. What Paul is saying is that the church, the Judaizers, by adding law to the gospel of Christ, these false teachers were effectively destroying grace. They weren't adding it and so that we still have grace, but just a little bit something on the side of it. They have completely destroyed it, turning the message of God's undeserved favor towards sinners into a message of earned and merited favor rather than by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Verse 8 and 9, Paul shows us why this is so serious, or the seriousness anyway with which he takes it. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to one that you have, we have preached, let him be accursed. Here he gives a hypothetical situation. Even if us or an angel from heaven were to come back to you and start preaching a different gospel than we had given to you previously, we should be accursed. Accursed here is translated again from the Greek term anathema, which means to devote someone to destruction for eternity. It means an eternal separation from God, an absolute condemnation or curse. This is the language with which Paul speaks of those who share a different gospel. Verse 9, he brings it back to the present. In verse verse 8, he speaks of the hypothetical. Even if him or an angel from heaven comes to them and preaches a different gospel, let us be accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one which you received, let him be accursed. He brings it back into reality. If anyone is preaching a gospel to them different, and they were, they were teaching this, and he was making it clear to them that these are false teachers. They do not carry the true gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16 is the only other place where the Scriptures give us um, a classification for those who are called anathema. And Paul says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Anathema. Our Lord, come two categories of people that Paul classifies as anathema, as accursed, are those who do not love the Lord, unbelievers, and those who preach a different gospel. This is not something to be trifled with. And Paul himself, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Gentile. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul does not mix works, law, with gospel. Because in doing so, it completely corrupts the gospel of grace. It corrupts the grace that then is to save them. I want to do a little bit of a transition here to go from the text here more into a topical sense, I guess. And I'd like to share and present the gospel of Jesus Christ from Scripture. And I'll use the same format and from the same notes I guess that I had from that gospel track that many of you have seen so you might be familiar with some of the points that I'm making but do follow along we may not be dealing with Judaizers as Paul was battling with circumcision being added to the gospel of grace 
But Christians throughout the history of the church have faced opposition to the true gospel being shared. We are not so fortunate in our day and age and in our culture to avoid this. In fact, it may have become worse with all the media availability. Again, don't get me wrong, technology is very beneficial. We have at our fingertips much good teaching that can edify the church and resources that people put on there for free for us to use and to learn. But we also see much false teaching, false gospels that are being portrayed just as easily into the homes where we live. And this is why it is so important to be in the Word, to know the Gospel, to study the Gospel, to be in it, to be able to discern that which is true versus that which is perverted. We mentioned before the saying, preach the Gospel and if necessary use words. What about other concepts like we are a light, and if we let our light shine, the unbeliever will be drawn to us and will desire what we have. Some maybe, but that is the drawing of the Holy Spirit, not our work. Because in John chapter 3, verse 18, in verse 16, we have a very popular memorized verse and a beautiful verse, it is. But in verse 18, John writes, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So easily we can allow ourselves to think that if by living and proclaiming, proclaiming the true gospel and living in light of that and being a light in a dark world, if it doesn't draw people to ourselves, that maybe we should change it up a little bit, change the program, change the feature. We can't do that because it is God who draws people. We are to be a light and those who love the Lord are drawn to the light and those who hate the Lord hate the light. We are not trying to reach a world through easy believism. I heard once um, well-known apologist William Lane Craig, he made the statement in a Q&A. He made the following statement, we should lower the bar for unbelievers to accept Jesus. This is a get-them-in mentality. Do whatever it takes. Easy believism. We don't see this with Jesus Himself when He is speaking with the rich man. We don't see Him calling after Him after He turns around and walks away, offering Him to just lower the bar. Please come back. You don't have to sell everything. Just sell part of it then. We'll deal with the rest once you're in. The idea isn't for us to change this message, to add anything, to take away anything from the gospel of grace. It is for us to be true to the gospel, to the message of the word, to preach the word and allow God to deal with the hearts of the people. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Foolishness, it's a word that means silliness. Absurdity. This is an absurd concept, the way God has chosen to save sinners. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, start in verse 18. Read through the rest of the chapter. You'll get a picture of how the wisdom of God is very different than the wisdom of man. This message of the cross, the gospel, it is foolishness. It is absurd to those who are perishing. And the people want the church to lessen this by removing the folly from the message and making it more palatable. Something has to be digested, or something that can be digested a little bit easier, tastes a little bit better, and this opens the door to those who could come in and preach a different gospel. So I want to look at four different points of the gospel. The first one, 
Number one, the character of God. The gospel must begin and end with the glory of God. God is our creator. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The fact that God is our creator means He owns us. We belong to Him. We are not our own. The one who created us has complete authority over each one of us. God is also our righteous judge. Psalm chapter 7, verse 8 to 17. Let's turn there. Psalm chapter 7, starting in verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent... God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High God. We are accountable to God as our judge. Each person will one day stand before God, our Creator, and we will stand before Him in judgment. And He will be just. He must be just. Judgment, sorry, He must use right judgment as well, or He would not be righteous. He will render to each one, Romans 2 verse 6 says, according to their due. Imagine for a second a person who has spent their lifetime involved in serving their community, homeless shelters, feeding the poor, orphanages, single parents, whatever it may be, hospital visits, helping out, doing many, many good things. And this person in a fit of rage were to kill someone very close to you. And he is now standing in front of the judge in the courts. The judge looks at all the things this person has done over the years, all the charity work, all the good that he has done, and declares him free to go. Would you feel that justice had been served? No. Would this just, uh, judge have been just? No. He would not. That is how it is with God. We have all sinned against a judge just and holy God and we are accountable to God for the penalty of our sins and the Bible tells us that the wages of our sins is death no matter what good we have done we must pay for our sin but praise God he is also our savior he loves us because we are his creation He is loving toward us and we need Him for our very survival. We depend fully on God for the very breath within us. John chapter 3.16, a very popular verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, We see God is our loving Savior. God made a way for us to be reconciled to Him through the cross of Christ. And why is this so important?
because we see in our next point the sinfulness of man. We, as human beings, are morally evil. Paul summarizes in chapter 3 of Romans 10 to 18, he summarizes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Jesus himself says that we are spiritually sick and we need a doctor. We need help. He also declares that he came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. We see our unrighteousness before God. Yet this is the good news. Jesus didn't come to find the righteous so that he could take them home. He came for the unrighteous. This is so important for us to recognize our own unrighteousness. Because if we were able to obtain righteousness by our own works, Jesus didn't come for us. He says he came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. So stop trying to earn your own righteousness. Because then we're missing the boat. He came for the unrighteous. This is where we need to recognize that. If we can earn righteousness, Christ did not die for us. Because he himself said again that he came to make the unrighteous, righteous through His sacrifice, through His righteousness. The Bible also tells us that we are slaves to sin and we are not free to live how we please, but desire to serve our flesh. John chapter 8 says, we are offspring of Abraham. The Jews were speaking to uh, Christ here. We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answers them and says, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Further in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Mankind is in the snare of the devil, captured to do the will of the devil. We cannot earn righteousness. We cannot do enough good to earn righteousness. We see a bit of a picture who we are without Christ. We've only covered a few very short passages and verses. And we have this idea that the condition of humankind is apart from God. We are morally evil. We are spiritually sick. We are slaves of sin. We are blinded to truth. We are children of wrath. We are spiritually dead. We are in a hopeless state. The very inclination of our human nature and our heart is evil. We cannot choose good. Jeremiah says our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. We cannot choose good. A slave cannot set himself free. A blind person cannot regain his own sight. We are an object of wrath. Can we appease that wrath? We are dead. Can we bring ourselves to life? I think we would agree the answer to both of those questions is no. We cannot. And this does paint a very bleak portrait and it does not do much for our self-esteem. In fact, it should do the exact opposite than what is so prominently promoted in our culture and in churches. Just be yourself. Be who you want to be. Feel better about yourself. You see, the point is, we are wicked people. We are unrighteous. And Paul in Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
This is a very crucial, important point and truth that we must acknowledge. The question maybe is, how does that make us feel? We can do nothing apart from divine intervention. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, we are helpless and hopeless to do anything about our spiritual condition in and of ourselves. That's the beauty of the gospel, the good news. This is what makes it so good, is it doesn't end there. The next point I want to look at is the sufficiency of Christ. Because He has done it. He has made a way. The life of Christ displayed the righteousness of God. We read in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, that the righteousness of God was manifested, which means to reveal that which was hidden. So the righteousness of God was revealed to us, to all of us through faith in the work of Christ, and we are justified by His grace through the faith through faith in the gospel. We are slaves to sin. So we need someone who is not a slave to sin. We need someone who conquered sin by their life. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may have mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So if we are slaves to sin and we need someone who is not a slave to sin, we have Christ. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin he was perfect he was righteous and because the life of christ displayed the righteousness of god his death was able to satisfy the wrath of god we all know we just again a little while ago came through the easter season again where we looked at the crucifixion of christ his death burial and resurrection and we know that through the cross the wrath of god was satisfied his love was exemplified and the name of God was glorified. Romans 3 verse 25 tells us that God put Him, Jesus, forward as a propitiation by His blood. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a sacrifice for you and for me. He turned aside the wrath of God. This is what the word propitiation means. That He turned aside the holy, just wrath of God that was meant to destroy our sin. He turned it aside by taking our sin upon Himself and the wrath of God then was poured on Him and He atoned for our sin. And our sin was paid for. He was our propitiation. He took the wrath of God upon Himself for our unrighteousness. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah chapter 53, we won't read it, um, but Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 10, speaks of this, the Old Testament. And he says, He was crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement brought us peace. With His stripes, with His wounds, depending which version you're reading, we are healed. Yet it was the will of God to crush Him. He took our sins upon Him. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him. The penalty was paid, atoned for, for our unrighteousness. And the righteousness of Christ was then transferred to all those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This, brothers and sisters, is very good news. His death satisfied the wrath of God and His resurrection demonstrated the power of God. God vindicated the work of Christ and the cross for our sins by raising Him from the grave. This means He cleared us of blame. He proved us right. We are justified. To summarize the first three points, we looked at the character of God. He is our holy, just judge, creator, and savior. 
We looked at the sinfulness of man. We are dead, objects of wrath, evil, spiritually sick, unrighteous. The sufficiency of Christ. Christ comes and His life displays the righteousness of God. And His death satisfies God's wrath. And His resurrection demonstrates God's power by defeating death. So the fourth point I want to look at. Jesus is the basis of our salvation. We must remember that. But we want to look at the necessity of faith. Christ is the basis of our salvation and He has done all the work. His work is the basis of our salvation. He purchased righteousness for you and me by His blood. And this is the free gift of God. This means there is no work for you to do. Jesus has done it all. His own words on the cross were, it is finished. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read the first ten verses. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The whole plan of salvation, the gospel message of the cross is all about Jesus Christ, the work of Christ. The gospel message begins and ends with Jesus. He is also the author of, and finisher, or the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It is by grace that we are saved. The undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor of God. That is what grace is. The gospel never exalts mankind. And any gospel that does this, we must throw it out. We hear of things like the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, All these things, it's all about me, 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 me. That is the first sign that it must be discarded and thrown out. We are made righteous because what Christ did, not what I did. The Bible calls our works of the flesh as filthy rags. It is only looking at Christ in faith and what He did. This is the basis of our justification before God. Faith is the means of our salvation. It is the opposite of works. Galatians 2 tells us that it is not of works by the, of the law, but by faith. So again, putting those two in complete contrast with one another. Through faith, we place our trust in God and the finished work of Christ. There is nothing we can do but trust in what has been done for us. Romans chapter 5 tells us we have been justified by faith. We have been reconciled to God by faith. One aspect of our faith that must always be there and is a sign of saving faith is our repentance. In simple terms, repent means to change our mind about something. And a change of mind will always involve actions as James makes it so clear in his epistle. The call of faith, the call of saving faith is repent and believe. It is not come try Jesus. See what He can do for you. And if you like Him, Stay with Him. If not, then don't. We must change our mind about who God is. 
about who we are, about sin, about the finished work of Christ. We turn from sin in ourselves and we turn to Christ. Repentance is so much more than simply just being sorry or saying sorry. It is a complete change of mind which results in a complete change of heart by faith given to us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. It changes us. John chapter 3, we read the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, where he talks about being born again. And I'll just read it off my notes here in John chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So in order to be saved, we must be born again. So what is that? I want to read a commentary explaining this passage a little bit from Dr. David Platt. It says, by initial faith in Christ, we are made right before God, the Father. Romans 5.1 tells us we have been justified by faith. We were enemies of God. We were reconciled by God or to God by faith. Romans 5 also tells us, so that, or sorry, that's also what Romans 5 tells us. So that's what happens. Justification made right before God, the Father, by faith in Christ. We experienced a new birth. You remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says to him, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So what happens when we're born again? Well, first, God opens our eyes. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You remember the whole context behind this. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a religious leader. He is devoted to the Word. He has taught others the Word. But his realization needs to come that he is dead and he needs life and he's never been born spiritually with all that he's done. And please, God, help us to see this, that no matter what we have done, we are still dead. You cannot make yourself be born. God has to open your eyes to this and then God has to change your heart. He says you must be born of water and the Spirit. You need a change that happens inside of you. Salvation, and don't miss this, does not happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. God changes our heart. It's what Titus chapter 3 talks about. talks about washing our hearts. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word does this. The whole background behind John chapter 3 with Nicodemus being born of water and spirit is Ezekiel chapter 36. The prophet Ezekiel talks about water and spirit. I want to remind you what the reference is here. What happens when God changes our heart. First, again, He cleanses us. Ezekiel 36, the background here in the Old Testament, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what happens when we are born again. God changes our heart. He cleanses us from our sin and washes us by the power of His Word. But that's not all. He says water and spirit. Born of water and spirit, He cleanses us. And second, He indwells us. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So God puts his spirit inside of us, and that's what we need. We don't just need cleansing. I'm sorry. This is what oftentimes we think of when we think of the gospel and salvation. We think, well, I've been cleansed from my sin. Now I'm going to go live however I want. That's not the gospel. You can't be cleansed from your sin and then just go live however you want. You are cleansed from your desire of sin. 
and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, that means you now desire to live how He wants you to live now. Do we still have desires to sin at times? Yes. But I think for those who are saved, we all recognize the work of the Spirit in sanctifying us and teaching us and training us to despise our sin. Even when we fall into sin, we despise it. We hate it. This is the work of the Spirit. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. When we receive salvation by grace through faith, not only are we cleansed, we are made a new creation, and the very Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and we are made His ambassadors, His representatives. Romans chapter 6, Paul speaks of, and I won't go there for a matter of time, but it's a very familiar passage in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Paul is addressing the concern that we are saved by grace and that where sin is, grace abounds all the more. Should we then continue to sin? And he says what? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? We are raised with Christ. Our old man has been crucified. We have now raised the newness of life with Christ Jesus. We died with Him. We're buried with Him. And we are raised with Him. The picture of baptism coming out of that. We are a new creation. And in verse 11 he says, So you must consider yourselves, believe that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Christians, do you believe this? Or are you giving the power of sin more credit than maybe than you ought? I believe this is why we so often fall is because we do not, we fail to understand how Christ has freed us, not only from the condemnation and wrath of God, but from the power of sin. And we have the freedom to say no sin. Romans 6 verse 14 says sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer has the authority over us. We are freed by the work of Christ. Though Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 struggles with sin, O wretched man that I am, he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's embrace these promises by faith. We are dead to sin and alive to God. We have died and been raised with the life of Christ. The part that is our responsibility is not leading to salvation. Those are the responsibility of Christ and of God. We must believe. You must believe. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and the work that He has done. How does this look for us as Christians? Or first, as unbelievers? How does this gospel look for justification? If you are here this morning and you are not a believer, what implication does this message have for you? How important is it for you to believe the right gospel you need to place your trust into the finished work of christ you don't come to christ so that he can add to your life we are called to die to ourselves and become slaves of christ but how about for those of us who are believers how does this look in our sanctification are we trying to become more sanctified through our works are we trying to please god by adding to what he has done for us remember our works do not lead in our sanctification, but they are the natural outpouring of one who has been saved. To do the work of God is the natural outpouring for those who abide in the love of God. And how does this drive us in your evangelism and discipleship? Do we realize, do we believe the Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God? Is the Word of God sufficient to do the work of God? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. It is breathed by God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. J. Adams once said, 
Man cannot be helped in any fundamental sense apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does this mentality lead us in our evangelism and discipleship? It sure should. So in closing, there is only one gospel, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw Paul teach not that there is another, but let anyone who teaches a different gospel be accursed. We must ensure that Jesus Christ and His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection remain the foremost and the focus in any gospel that we share. Colossians 1 says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. He is preeminent. This term is only used once in all of Scripture, and it is entitled to Jesus Christ. It is used to define His attribute. It means to be first, to be first place, to be first in rank or influence. Jesus Christ is number one. He is the top. He is above all else. He is all that matters. He is enough. If we are in health or if we are in sickness, Jesus is enough. If we seek healing, we may receive it. We may not, but He is enough. If we are in wealth or in poverty, if we have learned, like Paul said, I have learned to be content with much and being in need, but Jesus is enough. And just like the disciples who all died horrible deaths, beheaded, crucified, crucified upside down, boiled in oil, banished into poverty, yet they counted it as nothing when compared to eternity. Because Jesus Christ is enough. You have to be willing to be hated by this world. You have to be willing to be hated by people you love and are trying to teach and to reach with the gospel. Because He is enough. And He is enough for them too. And no matter the persecutions you may face by proclaiming the gospel, it is all for His glory. In our opening text in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Let us serve Christ and please God through the proclaiming of His Word, of His Gospel that exalts Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I come before You again this morning. And God, I pray that this message will have touched hearts, Lord, and that we might each grow confident as believers, as Your children, God, to know what You have done for us and that it is not based on our works, Lord, but on Your sufficiency and your righteousness and let us walk in that and be humbled in that as we proclaim your word boldly God and let us take this world to the lost world around us or this word sorry just like our brother Jake did this morning to share the word with an unbeliever so that your gospel might not return void your word would not return void God let us be faithful to your gospel not add works not add our own merit not add our own programs and our own desires to this word, God, but to preach it as you have given it to us and allow your spirit to work through that and build your church to the glory of your name. Amen.